In 10 years, what does your life look like? First of all, I hope you don't think that you're going to be old then because I'm past that 10-year mark for most of you guys. All of you? Wow. That's not good. So 10 years from now, I want you to really think about that. Where are you living? Do you have a family? Are you married with a kid? Do you still live with your parents, maybe? (laughs) How do you spend your time? What do you do? Do you work? Are you retired already? (laughs) Where do you work? What do you do at work? Do you like your job? What are your dreams? Well, when you think about 10 years from now... Some of you guys are hoping that some of these girls are still in that picture for you. Some of you girls are hoping there's a better pond to fish in. So, ten years from now. When you dream, what are you doing? Where are you living? How are you living? Who are you living with? I want you just to kind of think about that. That's going to be kind of where we are um, tonight. And the first opening text that I have, and it's kind of our springboard, uh, the message series for this weekend really hit me in May. I'll share a little bit more about that tomorrow night. But it hit me in May, and I knew this is what we were teaching this fall. Like, I just knew this is where we were going. And then I was reading a few weeks back in Genesis 11 and the the jumping off text, the springboard for us came in Genesis 11, 4. It says this. You might be familiar with this text. It's uh, the Tower of Babel. All the people living together and they now decide that they are going to do this activity. And and what are they going to do? It says this, 11, 4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Is it going to work or no? All right. Sorry. Maddie worked out tremendously. You were extremely helpful, and then I changed all of it on you, and so it didn't format perfectly. So we'll let her fix it tomorrow night for us. Uh, let me read that text again so we're not distracted. The people decide, using all the technology, wisdom, and hard work that they have, they say, come, let us build a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. See, here we have come to this point in Genesis 11 where the people say, we know a lot We have a lot of ability. We have a lot of skill. We've learned a lot. We're going to now apply it. And what are we going to apply it to? 
us reaching heaven. We're going to use all of our hard work, all of our skill, all of our technology, all of our good ideas, and it's going to make a way for us to reach the heavens. We're going to build something so great that we make a name for ourselves. What are they saying? We want to make a difference. We want to change the world. We want to leave an impact. We want to matter. We want to be seen. We want to be known. And isn't that the desires of our heart too? To make an impact? To change the world? I doubt many of you on your 10-year plan were still living where you're living. I doubt many of you were just working a job. Like, it's okay. It's not really what I'd love. I doubt many of you were just in a, a hopeless and... No fun marriage. I I hope your dream wasn't that. We want to be great. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to to achieve. And that's what's going on at the Tower of Babel. They want to be all that they can be. They want to be their best self. They want to use everything they have to become something great. Something that makes the history book. So I asked myself this question a couple weeks back. Why do you want to be what you want to be? Why do you want to be what you want to be, really? You you may say, well, I'm good at math and science, but is that why you want to be what you want to be? Sure, I, I like using this skill, or my parents did this, or this makes a lot of money, or this was a, a good first major to get, or it pays a lot. But why do you really want to be what you want to be? Why do you want to be a doctor so that you can heal people? Why, why do you want to be a teacher so that maybe you can teach people to help people? Why do you want to be a, a businessman or woman so that you can make a good living and take care of a family? Why do you want to be an engineer so you can build something, so you can make something with your hands? But, but beyond just, oh, I get to do this, why do you want to be what you want to be? I ask myself this, why have I taken the jobs I've taken? Before uh, working here, I was a youth pastor. Why, why did I say yes to that job? Is it because it was the only job offer I had and then you just take it, right? Probably. Well, why did we come to Texas? Well, because I like college students and I thought I could do college ministry okay and I thought it would be fun and that's all been true, but here's what I worry When we make these plans for our lives, when we erect these towers of Babel, we're doing this so that we can show off what we can do. I want to do this. I, I want to make it this way. And I wonder how many times we feel like these things come from God. Like, oh, in my dream, I'm going to go back to my hometown. In my dream, I'm for sure going to be living in Texas. In my dream, I'm going to be making this amount of money. In my dream, I'm going to be married to this person. But how often is that my desire and I just hope God's okay with it? How often do we pursue whatever we want and we just hope that God accepts it? At the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves, to make their name Great. Over this weekend, we're going to talk about that idea of greatness. Tomorrow night, I'm going to ask you to stop pursuing greatness. But tonight, I'm going to break you of why we need to stop it. See, some of us not only want to be great, we want to be the greatest. Like, the best. Right? We want the best resume. We want to have the best score. We want to have the best resume. We want to be not only great, but better than everybody else in this room. I fall into that category oftentimes. Others of you, 
You are not uh, motivated by a desire to be the best. You're motivated by fear. Terrified of failing, of being a disappointment, of not measuring up, of being exposed. Some of you don't care about being the best, and you're really not scared of much. Well, you're scared of not being perfect. You're motivated by this internal desire, this internal standard that if I don't meet it, then I have failed what I have uh, set for myself that I have to achieve. And when I fail to meet that standard, it is over. We desire greatness over everything else in our life. We can define greatness as different things. For some of us, it's to be admired or to be exalted or to be uh, highly thought of, to be respected. For some of us, greatness is to make a lot of money so that we can live however we want. For some of us, greatness is just being safe and secure and loved and with someone. For others of us, greatness is ha- uh, like being famous and being known and, you know, like everybody can see us. I don't know what you define as great, but I'm willing to bet that you're pursuing it. That you're orienting your life in a pursuit of being great. You're setting yourself up with everything that you do so that you can be great however you define it. And we're not the only ones. Jesus' disciples ran into this. Mark chapter 9 and... Uh, and you can take that off the screen, Davis. Uh, Mark chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 18, it's interesting. The disciples argue as they're walking down the road, who is the greatest? Jesus actually asked them, like, what were y'all talking about? And they kind of sheepishly go, well, we were debating who is the greatest among us. And then Jesus says, guys, you just don't get it, do you? If you want to be great, and he calls a child over and he says, you've got to be like this child who trusts me, who believes in me, who is happy just to be with me and doesn't have to earn my favor, doesn't have to prove himself, doesn't have to jockey for position. I was thinking uh, two weeks ago about this message, and I was like, all right, who are Bible characters that are great? And there's some, right? There's kings, and they they were great. There's some great leaders throughout the Bible. But then it led me to another question. Who in the Bible would I want to trade lives with? That became a hard question to answer. Now, we're going to put a caveat on it. I'm not willing to trade my life with anybody that doesn't have AC or Wi-Fi, right? Like, <laughs> let's just be honest, okay? I, I'm not riding a horse all day or a camel. Like, so let's take that off the, like, of course we're not going to trade for that, okay? But it, if we just wrote the story of our life, is there anybody in the Bible that you would choose to trade lives with? Adam and Eve, right? They got to experience heaven on earth. But then they ruined it for all of us. Probably not going to choose them. Abraham, right? Like the father of the nations, the father of Israel, the one who gets the covenant. But are you and I willing to wait till 75 for God to speak and then to 100 to see his promise fulfilled? I doubt it. What about Joseph? Well, I'd rather not experience two years of prison and being uh, sold away by my family. What about uh, Moses? Would, would we really like to have been put in a, a basket and put in the river to die? Yeah, growing up in Pharaoh's house was great, but then being in the middle of nowhere, shepherding my father-in-law's sheep for 40 years of my life, yeah, I'm not going to choose that one. I can write a better story than that. 
David, he's the king. Man after God's own heart. But we probably don't want adultery in our story. I mean, we can see these guys. Even a guy like Joshua. Are you okay being second in command for most of your life? What about John the Baptist? I mean, his head was served on a platter. Isaiah. He gets to see the train of the robe of the Lord, and he gets this call of God on his life. But you remember what his call is? To go to people and preach to people who aren't going to listen and who are going to reject you. Yeah, I get enough of that every Sunday morning. What about a uh, Paul? Beaten, stoned, left for dead? No thanks. What about this guy, like one of the twelve that maybe we don't hear a lot about, like Peter, I don't really want to be crucified upside down. What about Thaddeus? You didn't even know Thaddeus was a disciple. (laughs) I could have put him on a multiple choice on the screen and you would not have guessed Thaddeus. Could we really accept being one of the twelve and nobody knowing our name? Girls, I don't want to leave you out. Would you be Sarah? Barren for 99 years? Would you be Rachel? Yeah, she's loved the most by Joshua, I mean by Joseph, but she dies in childbirth of Benjamin. I don't think that's the story you're writing. What about Ruth? I mean, Asher kind of debunked the idea of Boaz as, uh, (laughs) I mean, but also, would you really want your first husband to die? Experience that, especially in a male-dominated culture? How about Mary Magdalene? And she's really close with Jesus. But do you know her story before she came to know Jesus? She had eight demons possessing her. See, here's the thing. As I look over the stories that God writes in the scriptures, they're not great enough for me. I'm not willing to take that story. I think I can write and devise a better plan for my life than what God has shown throughout scripture. I'm not willing to trade with them because I think I can manufacture something better. The godly aren't great enough and the great aren't godly enough for me. I can do better than all of them. At least I think. Flip with me if you have your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're talking about this idea of greatness. Matthew 5 is this passage in verses 3 through 10 called the Beatitudes. We're going to look at um, them individually here in just a second. The Beatitudes are really Jesus' way to say, this is how you ought to live, and it's going to contrast everything that the world tells you. Uh, A guy named Michael Frost writes it. He says, we are called to live questionable lives. I love that phrase. We should live lives that others go, wait, what? You're responding this way? Uh, Matthew 5, verse 16, I believe. Let me get to it while I'm there. It says, we are to live such good lives among the Gentiles that they see our good works and they give glory to God, our Father. But Matthew 5, verse 3, let's hear what Jesus says. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But do you know what greatness has taught us? Greatness says, Blessed are the rich in things, for they experience heaven on earth. That's what we believe. Blessed are the rich in things, not the poor in spirit, because they experience heaven on earth. Next, blessed are the meek. No, those who mourn, excuse me. 
Got to get to the right page. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. No, greatness says, when we pursue it, it says, blessed are the happy, because they have no worries. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus says. But the greatness tells us, blessed are the courageous, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus says, blessed are those uh, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But what do we say? Blessed are those who live good lives, for they are rewarded. Jesus continues, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But no, we say be fair, not merciful. Fair is all you have to be. If you're fair, people will respect you and show you favor. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8, for they shall see God. No. Blessed are the ones who do whatever it takes. They're the successful ones. Jesus continues, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We say blessed not are peacemakers, but are leaders, the winners. For they will be exalted. Finally, Jesus says, blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. We don't ask for persecution. No, we say blessed are the praised, for they experience heaven on earth. See, we don't want to accept what Jesus has called us to do. We can write better stories. We can do better things. And so we say, Jesus, you don't understand what it takes to be great. You don't understand that it takes hard work and courage and boldness. It takes stepping over people in order to receive what I'm really desiring. Jesus, we have to be great. If we're not great, we're a failure. Because we compare ourselves to everyone and everything. So I'm going to look uh, in a practical sense for us tonight at the allure of greatness. I see greatness promising us three things. First, greatness promises us fame. Greatness says you will be famous. People will see you. People will notice you. People will look up to you. People will like you. In Matthew 23, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees get a bad rap in modern day, but in their current day, they would have been the people that were looked up to as the most righteous, the best, the best people, the good people, the ones who did everything right, the ones who followed the Scripture to a T. They didn't mess up at all. And Jesus says, okay, yeah, you're crossing every T and dotting every I, but you're missing the motive behind it. And they are pursuing fame, pursuing greatness. Why? How do we know that? Genesis, I mean, not Genesis, Matthew 23, 5 through 7. They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. Ooh, how many of us do that? All of their deeds to be seen by others. Now it talks about they, they want to show off how prayerful and how godly they are. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They want to be known, seen, valued, looked up to. They want to have the highest places. Greatness says you can be famous, you can be powerful. And we want it so bad. Greatness also promises us that we can be, that we can have a fortune. 
And, and if we make a fortune, then we've made it. Life is good. It's an interesting story when Jesus interacts with that rich young ruler in Matthew 19, just a few pages back. This guy has proven himself to be great by worldly standards. Now he wants to verify that he is great in heaven, that he will make sure that he has a spot. So what does he do? He goes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing that he is rich, he says this after a little bit of a conversation. He says, you got to make a choice, man. Verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But what does the rich young man do? He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Greatness promises possessions. And that possessions matter. And we have to have them. That if we don't have them, life is not lived to the fullest. That if we fail to have, then we're going to be missing out forever. Here is the the paradox of the Christian life for so many of us. Read verse 22. Verse 23, excuse me. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, each and every one of us is straining and striving to make more every single day. We are not willing to accept something that's not going to pay me enough. Because we fundamentally believe that we have to have a certain amount on our weekly pay stub, or a certain amount sitting in our bank account for life to be great. And what is Jesus saying? We are pursuing what's only going to make it more difficult to follow Him. We are spending our life chasing after what's only going to ratchet up the difficulty for us to have faith in Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. There was a study done about eight, nine years ago by Princeton University that looked at happiness uh, compared to wealth. Maybe you've heard this study, but what they found is this magic number of 75,000. If a family makes $75,000, their happiness level doesn't increase if they make any more than that. 75 all the way up, it doesn't change their happiness level. Now, If you make less than that, poverty does turn into uh, more difficult times and there is less happiness under that normal, I mean under that level and number. However, most of you, when you take your first job, will be making very close to that number. And yet you're going to spend the next 50 years straining and striving to figure out how to double, triple, quadruple that number every single day. Should I take this job? Should I get this promotion? Should I, should I move my family here? Should I, should I be working this? Should I step over him to get to this? Why? Because we believe this lie that if we have more, then life will be better. But Jesus is telling us, no, it, it doesn't make any sense. Even Princeton University is telling us, no, we're pursuing the wrong things. All right, there's one more, and then we're going to kind of land this plane in a place where it makes sense for you. The final thing is this. Greatness promises us freedom. 
If I can make enough, I can live however I want. If I can be great enough, I can do whatever I want. In Luke 12, 16 through 21, there's a really interesting parable Jesus tells. Jesus is talking and he says this. You get to Luke 12, it says... And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now get that. The land produced. Okay? But what happens? And this man thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I've made it. I am so great that I have no worries, no issues, no bothers, no, no, no burdens, nothing. I can sit back, relax, and drink my sweet tea on my porch and be happy. But God said, Fool, this day your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What is going on here? Greatness says if you can just reach a certain level, you're good. You're free to do whatever you want. Travel wherever you want. Be wherever you want. Do whatever you want want greatness promises freedom but it doesn't really give it i was reading a book called the ruthless elimination of hurry a few months back and it was a really interesting uh, observation the guy in the book uh, says that the sign of wealth in our culture has completely changed over the last few decades so if you've ever watched a movie from the 80s or 90s and you see a rich person they're usually at the country club Playing golf or yachting um, or playing tennis and wearing the sweatband and everything like that, right? Like the rich person is seen in leisure activity. But now when we watch a commercial that is trying to portray a rich person, maybe it's a luxury watch or a luxury car. What does it show? It shows a man or a woman dressed in really nice clothing. All the lights are off in the office except their light. They're late for a date with someone, and so they hop in the uh, luxury SUV or luxury car, and they are not in the free and open roads getting to experience the power of the car. No, they are running through a concrete jungle uh, experiencing all of this hustle and bustle. Why? Because now the sign of wealth is not leisure, it's more work. We brag about how much we have to work. We brag about how many hours we're putting in. When you were laying out your plan, did you think, oh, I'm going to work 36 to 40 hours? Or no, you've been told and you uh, take it as a badge of honor that I'm going to be working 60, 70 hours a week and I'm going to be making all this money but I have no time to spend it. Well, we have this idea that to be great, we have to exhaust ourselves. We have to work ourselves to death. We don't want to be the lazy bum who just works 40 hours a week. Greatness says we've got to be working so hard. 
all the time. So, what do we do with this? I came up with a definition that I like when I think about greatness and our pursuit of it. And here it is. Greatness is the pursuit of creating heaven on earth. When we are choosing greatness, we are pursuing to create heaven on earth. What does that mean? We build our own mansions. We have our own streets paved of gold. We get to eat great feasts and be a part of great banquets. We're happy. We are carefree. And to use some revelation language, there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow. This is the world we're trying to create in this broken world. We are trying to create heaven in this broken earth. Every day we are trying to build this tower of Babel that we can make our name great. We can make our life great. We can make this world great for us. But it's not going to last. Jesus questions us all the time. Why do you uh, store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy? Where thieves break in and steal? But store up treasures in heaven. Two weeks ago, I was doing our bedtime routine with our little boy Cooper, and I was reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to him. And there was, we were in the Tower of Babel. So remember, go back. They're building this tower to reach the heavens, so that they can make themselves a name for themselves. And this is what Sally Lloyd Jones says. She said, "God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without Him." But God knew that that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would, not, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plan. They were pursuing greatness. And what does God do? He comes in and at the Tower of Babel, if you know that story, they were all of one language and then now he confuses them and gives them all different languages. And so the plan to erect this tower stops immediately because they can't work together anymore because they're all speaking different words. And then here's what she ended with. You see, God knew however high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. No matter how hard we try to create a heaven here on earth. No matter how big our mansion. No matter how great our food. No matter how perfect our life. It can never be great enough. It can never save us from the pains that come from this broken world. She continues on. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven isn't a staircase. We wish it was so many times. The rich young ruler wished it was. If I could just take a few more steps towards holiness, if I could just do a few more things, I can kind of reach it. The way back to heaven isn't a staircase, it is a person. We spend our lives trying to earn everything. Earn a grade, earn a degree, earn a ring, earn a job, 
earn a spouse, earn enough to build the house we want to live in. We have spent our lives trying to earn, to be great enough to get what we desire and deserve. But we need to understand that there is a person who offers us something so much greater. Who says in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who says you don't have to continue in this race that the world is living in. You can trust me and believe in me. I will rescue you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to make your own way. I will provide a way. You can never be great enough. But I'm more than enough. So I want you to re-ask that question. Why do you want to be what you want to be? Because for a lot of you, you chose it because you thought you could be great. It would pay enough to make you great. It would be prestigious enough to make you great. That the MD after your name makes you great. Or at least greater than everybody else in this room. See, we believe that if we do this, we will be great. And so we chase fame and fortune and freedom. And forget faith, faithfulness and following. We've bought into the lie that we can create heaven on earth. So I'm going to end with this. I don't know where I was. I literally, I'm really good at memory typically, and this one just completely has lost me. But somebody told me this phrase. I was meeting with this person, and I know that they serve an underprivileged and just an under-resourced and impoverished area. I can't remember if it's in Toronto or New York or if it's in College Station or what. It's, it's bothering the mess out of me. But I remember what they said. I said, how can we help? What, what can we do to, to help the people that you're serving, to help them break the cycle of poverty, to help them be able to get out of the pains that that world can bring? And this person looked at me and they, and they said this. You can teach them to dream. And it stopped me. Teach them to dream. And then they proceeded to tell me that their dreams stop at the edge of the impoverished community. Their dreams don't go beyond what they've ever seen. They don't dream of things that you have dreamed of or the dreams that you even have for them. But their dreams stop on this side of town. She said they dream too small or they don't even know how to dream. They've never been given hope. They've never been told they can be something. They've never been told that there's a way out, that there's something better, that there's something good, that there's something that they can enjoy. You need to teach them to dream. Students, I think that you have also forgotten to dream. Here's what I mean. I ask you, what is your 10-year plan? What is your dream for 10 years from now? And here's what I'd be venture, I'd be willing to bet. 95% of you dreamed 
in what you could create by yourself. Your dream didn't need God at all in it. That's scary to me. When we lay out our life, we we sit in what can Jordan control? So our dream sat in what house I get to live in, how many square feet it is, what car I get to drive, what job I work. You know what we've forgotten those dreams? Those family members that are lost and need to know a Savior, but we didn't really worry about worrying about that in our dream. That was too big. You know who we forgot in our dream? The lost and the lonely. You know who we forgot in our dream? When I said, all you have to do is dream 10 years from now. You know what you didn't talk about? How homelessness was being eradicated in the area you're around because you're being salt and light there. You know what else didn't get shown up in your dream? That people that were stuck in poverty were not being pulled out of it because there was hope in a Savior who not only meets spiritual needs but desires to meet physical needs. You know what it wasn't in your dream? That people that are your best friends that are wayward and far away from Christ would come to know Him. Those are not in our dreams. Our dreams stay selfish and personal. Our dreams stay in what we can create. And if we're not careful, you don't need God for the next 10 years. Most of you in here can be great enough by yourself. But you know what? Your dream's too small. You've fenced it in to what you're capable of. And you haven't given God the freedom to work in ways that He wants to in your life. You and I spend our lives pursuing greatness, creating heaven on earth for ourselves, rather than bringing the kingdom of God that's life-changing, world-changing ways to those around us. My hope tonight as you wrestle through this text and through what we've talked about is that you'll realize greatness isn't worth it. Tomorrow night I'm going to offer kind of what I think is the remedy and what we should be pursuing. But what I want you to do tonight is to wrestle with where am I pursuing greatness at all cost? And what am I sacrificing because of it? Because tests take the place of small groups. Homework steps in for our Bible reading. Prayer is forgotten, but we make sure to add another hour to our study time. Because we want to be great more than we want to be godly. And that's scary. And I'm right there with you. Let me pray. Sydney and Connor.